Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Because I'm completely useless at remembering to mention this, I'm going to mention it up front right now, which is that you should check out my website, forcefreegundog.com, for courses on all kinds of gundog specific tasks and subjects and training exercises and shenanigans generally. So go check it out, forcefreegundog.com. Also, you should check out my book if you haven't already, which is Force Free Gundog Training, The Fundamentals for Success. And you can get that from Amazon pretty much everywhere. It's not kind of in all the Amazon stores yet. I am working on that, but Amazon are kind of very difficult to work with as they're very ginormous and it's very difficult to actually get in touch with the real person there. But I'm onto it. Anyway, let's get on with this episode. Pull the line. So the first thing to give you a bit of a heads up about is a project that my husband's actually been working on. So he came back from working in London for three weeks and he had to self-isolate for a fortnight on returning home and needed something to get going with. And he had this idea that people find it difficult to plan training sessions and to think about what they want to train and you know break things down into achievable realistic goals rather than have this ginormous goal of I don't know train my dog to reliably run blind retrieves you know how do you break that down into achievable small goals on a daily basis so my husband has had this idea that what we really needed was a workbook to accompany force free gun dog training fundamentals for success which I wrote so He's been hard at work designing this workbook, which is almost finished. It's kind of like we've got the ISBN for it now. It's kind of put together and we're about to look at some proofs uh, arriving for us to check through. So it's going to be available very soon. So I just want to give you a heads up about it so you know that it's coming out. So there are going to be different sections of the book to help you plan your training. There will be, for example... um, a section where you can plan your daily sessions, a section where you can have an overview of the week and you can look at the month and you can have long-term goals for your dog and things that you want to achieve and how you can break these down to shorter-term goals. There are also lots of check boxes so you can progress through the training which is covered in Force Free Gun Dog Training, Fundamentals for Success, and you can tick off the exercises as you achieve them. And we've got some little icons as well to help people generalize things so that they, the dog gets to do them in different environments. So there's also an events section where you can sort of reflect on how things went for your dog, whether it's a training day or whether it was a shoot, whether it was a test or competition of some description or assessment day. You can make a note of who the judge was, of what the tests were, of how your dog performed in the test and the things that you want to work on going forward. So it's kind of like gives you an opportunity to reflect back on things for your dog. So planning is something that we've talked about before on the podcast 
if you remember back, there was an interview that I did with Hannah Brannigan not too long ago, and it was one of the subjects that came up in that interview, the importance of planning our training sessions and why we're always going to get more out of them if we plan them rather than if we just sort of turn up and try and just do the things that come into our head on the spur of the moment. So do listen back to that podcast episode. It was with Hannah Brannigan relatively recently. But yeah, many years of time that I have tried to just wing it as it were and you know I haven't made a plan because sometimes making a plan feels like an onerous task in itself so you just sort of think oh well I just won't do that I'll just go and you know do whatever whenever we get out there and then you get out there and the rain is is pouring with rain and you're standing by your car thinking oh I've just got to get the dog out and what am I going to do and all the ideas about all the things you need to train just disappear out of your head until you're just thinking well I'm just going to get the dog out and exercise the dog and then we can just go home and I can get on with my day. And so the dog gets some physical exercise, but you know that it wasn't really a good use of your time together and you didn't really capitalize on it to do to do valuable training. So I think, you know, making a plan so that you you don't have everything leave your head when you're standing there with your dog in the pouring rain is is a really excellent thing. And this kind of workbook is designed to help people with that because the plans that I used to make were just little notes in a little notebook, which is perfectly fine. But I think that it's going to help people to have some sort of templates and suggestions for how they can approach planning rather than just being confronted with, you know, the daunting blank page, as it were. So anyway, I will let you know when this is published and when it comes out. So if you like ticking things off and you like planning things, and you like being organized and structured in your approach to training, you're going to want to get a copy of this book when it comes out. So I'll give you a heads up anyway when it is released, but I just wanted to let you know that it is almost there. So that's pretty exciting stuff. Hold the line. So I've got a question from a listener to start with here. So the question is from Howie and he says, Hi Joe, currently doing your clicker retrieve training, which is going well when I'm not making mistakes. Thank you. I have a gundog clicker training question that I've been thinking about, which I'd like to ask your opinion if you have time or to address in a podcast. I train, hunt, and trial working cockers. I use an Acme 210.5 whistle, two short pips to turn the spaniel while it is quartering. Ideally, no whistle is better. However, good dogs will always push the boundaries when on scent or they are in cover. They need to come out to check in with me as I might wish to move on to another area. Now, to try and explain my concept using clicker training, the two pips cue not only a turn, but for the spaniel to visually check in with me after making the turn. How do you train this desired behavior? And then he sort of elaborated a little bit more um and said the simplistic approach would be to click whenever i get a glance from owen that's his dog and toss a tasty treat a couple of meters in front of me which would also encourage a closer sweep past me when owen's retrieve is sorted then i can also reward with a thrown dummy but that is complicated by owen needing to be steady to throw in dummies the long-term rewards needs to be for owen if i turn and look at my teammate howie and follow his direction we will find more game together which means i get more contacts flushes and more retrieves am i on the right track in my thinking kind regards howie so, Howie, the first thing I would say, I think, is a more general point, which which is going to be sort of, it depends on the dog, of course, as always. So the more, the more the dog is wanting to pull out further, to hunt by themselves, to go a little bit AWOL, to disconnect from you and not be in relationship with you while hunting, then the more you are going to be wanting to encourage engagement with you, looking at you, contact with you in some way to sort of put the brakes on that a little bit and keep keep the dog in a little bit tighter. And then the opposite goes as well. So the more that you want the dog um, to range further, to hunt more independently, 
to you know things which probably HBR owners are going to be looking for to be honest um, then the less contact you're going to be trying to instill into the hunting process with you while still of course managing to maintain that contact you don't want to lose connection with the dog altogether so it depends on the dog as to what you're going to do I'll just talk a little bit about how I train the turn whistle in case that is relevant in some way which probably is um so I choose not to train the turn whistle early on in the dog's sort of learning about all of this and learning about hunting I prefer to focus on teaching the recall whistle and teaching the remote sit and stop at a distance whistle. And I find that if I try and teach all these whistles alongside each other all together, then they get a bit muddled up for the dog and the responses tend to suffer accordingly because the dog's not quite sure which whistle cue it is. So I try to teach them very separately, first of all, before I bring even the recall whistle and the sit whistle together into the same session. And I don't introduce the turn whistle until... So it's, it's kind of like... Um, if you have ever trained a puppy to go to the toilet by taking them out to have a wee or a poo and while they're in the process of sniffing around and having a wee or a poo you say busy busy or um, wee or poo or I don't know, whatever word you want to say probably something which is not wee or poo unless you want to say that in public for the rest of your life every time you want your dog to go to the toilet but you know I stupidly have done that and so end up saying wee 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 in public I don't recommend that Anyway, the fact is that you say something which through association gets connected for the dog with the action of peeing or pooping. Now, there's no kind of reinforcer provided by you in this situation. There might be an inherent reinforcer in the relief of the dog urinating or defecating. That may be a reinforcer, a naturally occurring reinforcer for the dog. So through association, you're connecting your cue, busy, busy, with the dog weeing or pooping. And you are doing that by observing when the weeing and pooping is going to happen anyway and getting your cue in just before it happens. So that's the kind of approach I like to take with the turn whistle. I like to sort of see when the dog's going to turn anyway and I just like to pop in my little turn whistle peep peep, just before the dog turns anyway, maybe even as they turn at first if I'm not sure they actually are going to turn. So in that way through association, the turn whistle gets connected with the action of turning. So... I would do that for a long while before I started to use it in a way which actually cued the turning and which, you know, elicited that behavior in the dog. So that's kind of how I train the turn whistle. And I also, I kind of fade it in. So rather than being really obvious with my beep beep in a really loud way at first, I'll, I'll, I'll blow it really, really quietly. So it's like beep beep, so it sort of fades in. I almost don't want the dog to notice it because often if they do notice it at first when I begin it, they think it's their sit cue or their recall whistle. Um, and so I almost don't want them to pay too much attention to it. I want it just to be in occurring in, in their awareness somewhere, but without them thinking that they need to do something about it. Um, so this is a kind of almost unconscious pairing, just like, you know, when you say busy, busy, the dog isn't thinking, oh, what does busy, busy mean? It means I should poop, you know, equally Pavlov's dog wasn't thinking, oh, what does the bell mean? It means I should salivate. They just salivated and the bell, which happened before the salivation got connected to the salivation to the point that when the bell was sounded the dog would begin to salivate even when there was no food anywhere around and no scent of food so the bell came to elicit that response in the dog so going back to our dog and pooping on cue the dog <laughs> the dog for association eventually you'll go busy 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 and that will in a sort of um, physical way make the dog want to poop um, and it's exactly the same approach i take to training the turn whistle 
So I'm watching the dog very closely. I myself am turning because at this point I'm still walking the zigzag, as it were, across the area. So when I turn, I know that the dog is likely to turn shortly afterwards as soon as they notice that I've turned. So I'll be watching the dog closely. And as soon as I see that beginning to happen or just about to begin to happen, I will do my beep beep turn whistle quietly because I'm trying to fade it in in such a way that it doesn't get too much attention drawn to it. So that would be how I would approach training the turn whistle. Now, there are going to be some breed differences, obviously, between what is considered to be desirable for HBRs slash versatile dogs um, and for spaniels. So it will probably look a bit rubbish for a, a HBR to be focused on their handler in a visual way that frequently. It would look like they're a little bit dependent on you and they weren't confidently and independently hunting. And so I think it actually wouldn't be seen to be desirable for the dog to make visual contact like that so however i can see that if you've got a hard hunting spaniel who wants to push out that visual contact can perhaps help you maintain a connection with your dog i don't think it's necessary by the way i think that the dog can make can be connected to you without actually you know visually looking at you dogs are great for responding to us without actually looking at us if you um you know attention and um eye contact for example are not necessarily the same thing so the dog can look at you and give you eye contact but that doesn't mean that when the dog is not looking at you they're not giving you attention does that make sense like you can have a dog who is extremely reliable on their cues but doesn't look at you at all so they sit for example when the rabbit flushes or maybe you're out with your dog and you just say to the dog down or the dog lies down um and they weren't looking at you but they lay down instantly on cue so the dog being connected to you and the dog looking at you are two different things. And we've sort of, I think we've talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, probably some time ago now, in terms of retriever training. Because we've talked about the idea that when retrievers are walking at heel in a walk-up, they actually don't want the dog to be staring at the handler because the dog will miss the marks. They will not see them and then they'll have to run them as blinds, which is a lot harder. So retrievers ultimately want to be reaching the point where the dog can walk by the handler's side but look outwards at the um, area in front to be able to mark accurately and behind as well sometimes so um, the the kind of objective is for the dog to maintain that connection with their handler and to use peripheral vision and to be aware of where the handler is but yet not to stare at the handler or look at the handler or give that very visual kind of eye contact so Which is all to say that connection with the handler and contact with the handler and eye contact are two very different behaviours. So think carefully about whether you do actually want that eye contact. Because I think sometimes people feel reassured by it. People feel that if the dog is looking at them, that it's giving them their attention and therefore it's more under their control. And so they inadvertently train this and select it. And sometimes it's not always helpful. So for example... Dogs running retrieves, which are sitting at your side, what will often happen is that the mark is thrown, for example, and then the dog will look up at the handler for permission to go and get the retrieve. And the handler frequently then sends the dog because the handler feels like, oh, look, my dog is really under control. They're looking at me. And so they're really under, under my control. Um, and I really like that. They're responsive. And so then they send the dog when the dog looks at them. However, what's happened there is the dog has marked where the dummy has come down. They've marked it and then they've looked away and they've looked up at the handler and they've taken their eyes off the point of fall. So arguably it's going to be harder for that dog to go out there and find that 
dummy than it would have been if the dog had just watched where it fell and kept their eyes super glued to that spot and not taking their, their, their eyes away from it until they were sent. And it would, that dog would have a better chance of accurately and quickly finding that, that dummy, that retrieve, than the dog which looks away up at the handler for permission to go. So eye contact might reassure us as handlers that the dog is connected to us, but eye contact and connection are not necessarily the same things and I, I think eye contact is often or visual connection is often detrimental to what we're trying to achieve when it comes to training our dogs in various different ways so this might just be a really long-winded way of saying Howie that I don't think I would train the eye contact um, but if it works for you and you feel that it's something that you need then by all means um, train it but it's not probably something that I would personally focus on training after every term whistle that eye contact um so i don't know if this has been very useful at all maybe it's given you some sort of um things to think about um but the other thing that i would say as well is that when training hunting it's always got to be about the individual dog and what the dog needs in terms of do they need more um encouragement to focus on their handler and not the environment or do they need more encouragement to focus on the environment and less on the handler and that's going to vary from dog to dog and probably spaniels because you're going to keep them in closer do need a bit more or a lot more emphasis on working with the handler and involvement from the handler to keep that to maintain that connection during the hunting process whereas with a lot of hpr breeds or that's versatile dogs um, we're actually trying to help them extend their range range further be more confident in the hunting and to achieve that a lot of the time the handler has to be quiet and shut up and you know fade into the background a bit and not try and intervene and interact with the dog too much during hunting because that just leads to the dog um, not ranging so far so confidently and being too connected to the handler so that may help as well um, but yeah, if, if clicking eye contact is something that you find helps and giving the treat helps, that is going to build more focus on you. And if that is something that you need with this particular dog, then probably that is a good way to go. Hold the line. So I've had a question from someone else who has asked me to talk a bit about how I use tug toys with HPRs. So by the way, that's versatile dogs if you're listening from North America. So some of this is also going to be relevant to Spaniels notably the sit to flush part of it with hprs things are extra complicated if you are in the uk because there's also the pointing side of things so this is actually quite a complicated topic and i have to say that in thinking about it sometimes my brain has almost kind of exploded so if you start to think oh wow this is just really complicated then that's because it is so firstly for HPR in the UK, let's just clarify what is required when you are working on game. So the dog finds the game and points the game and should be staunch on point, but there's not the same sort of strict um, requirement that the dog not move at all as there is in North America. So if the game moves, it would be considered appropriate for the dog to relocate and um, repoint the game. So anyway, the dog points, the handler cues the flush so the handler tells the dog to get in and the dog will get in and will flush the game hard the game will fly up or run depending on what it is and the dog will then sit to the flush so that's kind of the sequence of events now the reason why this is a really difficult sequence 
is because it involves stop, go, stop, go. So if you think about it, the dog is running along hunting and then they point. So they stop and they point the game. Then the handler gives the get in cue. So that's go, go get it. You can have it now. So the dog goes in and the dog must in some part of their brain believe that they can get it in order to flush hard. If the dog doesn't really believe that they're ever going to get the game when they flush, they'll be really rubbish at flush. They'll just be really half hearted and they won't flush hard. So the dog kind of flushes hard and doesn't get it at that point, we hope, unless they peg it. Um, Hopefully the game um, flies away and the dog sits to the flush. So that's the stop part again. And then the game is shot and it falls and then the dog is sent for the retrieve. So that's the go part. So what you've got is running along and hunting and going, as it were. Then you've got stopping and pointing and then you've got go again with the flush and then you've got stop again. When the, when the game flushes and then you've got go again with the retrieves. So and no wonder this is really difficult. I mean, if you've ever seen those videos where, well, it's usually something like an Australian cattle dog and the dog is usually, um, it's usually a tug toy on the floor and the dog is kind of walking forwards and then, and then the handler might say, okay, walk backwards now. And then the handler might say, okay, do a spin. And then finally the handler says, okay, get it. And then lets the dog get the tuggy toy. So it's a little bit like that kind of thing because it's, there's this intense sort of control that the dog has to have in the presence of the thing that they want to get. So I think this is what makes it a really unique challenge. Now, I'd just like to say that the role or the job for for these dogs in North America is, in my opinion, not so difficult because it's much more consistent. The dog is hunting, the dog finds the game and they point, and then they just stay in that position. They, they point the game, the handler flushes the game themselves, so the dog doesn't move. The dog remains in that stand position the handler flushes the game and it's shot and it falls and the dog just continues to stand there and then the dog goes to get the game when they're sent so there's not there's a whole sort of um part of it which involves the flushing isn't there and so for that dog it's just run around and go quote unquote because the dog's hunting and then stop when you point and then go again to get it so it's a lot simpler there's not there's not the same sort of backwards and forwards And I think that's what makes it particularly complex in the UK. So, um, or in countries where, I should say, in countries where dogs flush the game themselves, it's not just the UK. So, um, yeah. So, meanwhile, we've got Spaniels. Now, Spaniels, they do flush the game themselves, but they don't have the whole pointing side of things. So, it's simpler in a different way. The dog is just running around, running around, running around, and they put something up and they sit when that thing goes up. And then that thing is shot, and then they go again. So, that's simpler as well. So part of what makes the role of um, the HPL's role so difficult is the stop, go, stop, go aspect to it. So okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. 
I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. Yes, in my eyes, that's where the tuggy comes in, and that's how it can be helpful, um, is in beginning to train some of these behaviours. Now, obviously, there's a large difference between a tuggy and game. There's no way that the dog believes that this is game, of course. But the tuggy is something the dog wants to get. is a reinforcer. The dog wants it, hopefully, um, <clears throat> if this is going to be useful. The tuggy in that way can can provide the... I mean, there is a similarity between game and the tuggy because game and the tuggy are both reinforcers for the dog. They're both things that we're expecting the dog to show this control around. So if a dog which really likes tuggy can show this kind of control around a tuggy, then we have a really great starting point for when we move on to game. And arguably, we're going to need to do less proofing and generalization when we are on game because we've done a lot of the kind of groundwork beforehand on tuggies. And do you know what? As much as using tuggies and flirt poles and things is really difficult, and in terms of controlling them and where they go, um, believe me that it's harder to control game and birds and where they tend to go. So it's better to do this stuff with flirt poles and turkeys if we can. Um, the other thing to say is that I know that the whole role, or the whole subject of should you let a dog play tuggy, a gun dog play tuggy, is you know um, an ongoing subject of contention. The fear is that the dog will develop hard mouth because the dog learns to grab the tuggy and bite down hard. And the fear is that the dog will then do that on game. So I can kind of understand that in a logical way, that worry. But for me, I've I've played tuggy with all my dogs and I've not seen a correlation between playing tuggy and developing hard mouth. Um, so for me, it's definitely worth what I can what I can get out of using the tuggy as a training tool and it's definitely worth the enrichment that this brings to the dog in their daily life it's fantastically um, you can just see that it's a natural behavior for them to um, have an outlet for this prey drive so anyway for me this works and that's all I can say um, but so what do we do so let's go on to that it's more interesting so the first thing is to think that there are two things that we need to practice. This is with a HPR. The two things are we need to practice the stay and the point and the stand and the steadiness and then the get in and the and the release on that cue. So that's the flush cue, get in. Um, you might say something different, but that's kind of what I say. So um, that's one one half of it. And then the other half of it is something is moving whether we're along the ground or going up in the air and you're going to sit to that flush so there's two things there's two things that we're training here um and let's think about the movement of the tuggy when we're doing this so when the dog is standing and pointing quote unquote the tuggy then they're going to be still and in order to try to emulate what's really happening with game the game itself would be still so 
the tuggy will be still. So you're going to get this point where you have a still tuggy on the floor, which the dog becomes aware of, and the dog's going to associate this with pointing. And maybe if you if there's a cue you want to give during the point to tell the dog to to hold that point, you can say that. So if you're in North America, you might say, whoa, whoa. Um, or if you're in the UK, you might say, steady, steady. That's what I tend to say. Um, and then there will be your flush cue, your get in cue to tell the dog you can flush. And if you're in North America, you wouldn't do that get in cue. You would just be working on proofing the the stand against everything. Um, so that, that would be your task. Um, so anyway, let's continue with the whole flushing thing. So that's one half of things. That's the flush thing. And then the other thing, the, the sit to flush is the tuggy is moving along the floor quickly, usually away from the dog, but it can be across in front of the dog's field of vision. Um, and that would be your ground game running away, which is the most tempting thing, by the way. Um, or there's your, your tuggy flying up in the air. That's your bird flushing. So what we're trying to teach the dog is if you see either of these things, you're going to sit in response to that. So this is what I try to do with the tuggy and to use it in these two different ways. So um, if you practice too much of one, it starts to become the default and the dog will start to offer it all the time, whatever the toy is doing. So if you start to do loads and loads of sit to flush, then as soon as the dog sees the tuggy, they'll just sit. As soon as you like put it on the floor, they'll just sit. And you'll kind of lose the, the stand point aspect and a get in from the stand because the dog will just be in this sort of default sit control position all the time, which um, if you've got a spaniel, that's not a problem. <laughs> um, but if you've got a HPR and you're, you want to be working on the point and the stand and the flush from the stand, then you want to be making sure that you're also practicing the other half of things. Does that make sense? Um, so... Yeah, so basically this would all begin, I always begin with tuggies on a long kind of like a soft tuggy, a fleece tuggy, a faux fur kind of um, tug. And it will be on a kind of chaser string. So, you know, something that you can move around um, and that would be the goal. That would be the kind of ideal tuggy. And then once we've got all this working on the tug, we would then move outside onto the flirt pole. So the excitement and arousal levels tend to go up a notch when you move on to the flirt pole because it's further away from your person, from your body. And so to the dog, it much more emulates a kind of real live separate animal kind of situation. Whereas the, the shorter tuggy on the chaser that you're holding, it's just like an extension of, of you. Kind of it's, it's, it's much more clearly belongs to you or is in, on your person. So it's less arousing. Um, I tend to find anyway. So things tend to get more excited. So it's always a good idea to start everything on the tug with the chaser. And then once it's working okay, to move it onto the flirt pole. It's also a lot easier to to move and manage the tug and to not let the dog get it. And if you don't want to, if they, if the dog um, made an error, it's, it's a lot easier. Um, then the flirt pole. The flirt pole, because it's much bigger and more unwieldy, it's difficult to manoeuvre around. So, so yeah, so what I would be working on is if you've got a, a puppy which has got pointing against it, they'll usually point the tuggy anyway, especially if you sort of tempt them with it but not let them get it and then tempt wiggle it on the floor and then not let them get get it whip it away behind your back and just keep making it appear and then disappear and then appear and then disappear you usually get a moment of pointing the tug and your job is to kind of increase the duration of that point so once you start to get a bit of duration you can associate the duration with steady steady and then with get in and with letting the pup get it after you say get in and using your body and your, you know everything about you to encourage the pup to get it when you say get in. So you get that nice hard flush. So 
that will be one part of things to be practicing. The thing to say about that is that getting the tug toy onto the floor in the first place is an art because the ideal is that the, the dog just encounters the tug toy on the floor like it, like it would encounter game out in real life already on the floor. But obviously <clears throat> moving out of, from one rep to another, that's difficult. So we have to get it on the floor somehow. And if we drop it on the floor, it then sort of is simulating something falling after the shot rather than just being on the floor kind of thing. Um, so I tend to kind of slowly kneeling on the floor, the little puppy slowly place it out to one side like it's a little mouse that has kind of scurried out and then frozen because it's become aware that it's being watched by the dog. Um, so that tends to work. Um, so yes, that's like the one little tricky corner to get it on the floor in the first place. So the other part of things is the sitting to flush. So when the when the um, tuggy runs along the floor when it goes up in the air that there's a sit response to that now i like to do this having already done loads of default sit so my pup is like just is offering me sit all the time anytime it wants something if it wants something i'm holding it will offer me a sit and it will get that thing if it wants to go through the stair gate into another room of the house i'll pause with my hand on the stair gate for the pup to offer me a default sit to go through the stair gate to go outside to get out of the car you know all the time if the pup wants to say hello to someone so every time there's something the pup wants, they know that they're supposed to sit already before we do any of this training with the tug. So then we bring the tuggy into it. So when I'm standing there holding the tug, they're going to sit because they want the tug. And so from there on, it's pretty easy to move it into placing the tuggy gently on the floor and the pup sits to dropping the tuggy from a little height and the pup sits and then releasing the pup with your um, cue, which tells them they can have the tuggy. So my tuggy reinforcer cue is tag um, but you need a cue which and for me I don't use the flush cue at this point because this isn't a flush this is simulating the sit to flush and so it's not there's not gonna be a flush at the end of that um, so I kind of save the get in for when I'm practicing the, the pointing standing side of things I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. 
you can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. So, yeah, so you've got your tuggy and your dog is offering you this sit when you are dropping it. And that was kind of working well and you want to build up very gradually i don't like to do this in such a way that the dog makes a lot of errors and quote unquote fails to get the tuggy i try to make this be as errorless as possible so that the dog is successful as often as as it's possible to achieve and to do that i gradually fade up how excitingly i'm moving the toy whether it's flushing along the floor away from the dog whether it's going up in the air i'm just gradually fading that in while still maintaining the response that I want from the dog with this sit. Um, it's not, sometimes I'm going to get it wrong and the dog's going to fail to sit and I'm going to have to remove the toy, but I want it to be not very often. A good way to think of it is that we want the cue to sit being the toy running away or going up in the air so that the dog views this not as a cue to chase, but as a cue to sit and therefore get it. So... Ultimately, when you're out in the field, the dog will often get it because they will get the retrieve. So the dog will sit to the flush and then the game will be shot and then they will get it. So it's similar in that sort of respect. Obviously, they won't get it every single time unless you are an amazing shot and never miss anything. But um, I think that comes with teaching the dog that reinforcers can sometimes be other than what they expect and to accept alternative reinforcers. So during this process particularly when I move outside onto the flirt pole, I want to make sure that the dog will accept food reinforcers as well as the release to the tug. So I will I will, I will, have food available and will occasionally reinforce the dog with the food. Now, if the dog refuses the food and says, you know, no, I want the tug, I don't want the food, I don't want the food, I want the tug, then I will put the tug away. I'll put it back inside the house and I will close the door and I'll come back out to the dog and I'll say, would you like the food now? And offer them the food then. Usually they will then eat the food because the tuggy or flirt pole has disappeared and the food is pretty tasty. And then I will go back inside and I will get the tug. I'll come back out again. So eating the food is reinforced by the reappearance of the tug and, and the resumption of the game. So in that way, we can teach the dog to accept the food when they may actually prefer the tug. And they will eventually get the tug again, but they're going to eat the food in between. And over time, the feed itself becomes reinforcing and then we're out in the field and we have a dog sit to flush but we can't release them to get the thing because maybe it flew away or maybe we're just practicing and no one shot it um then we can provide an alternative reinforcer we can provide that food and we've got a dog which will accept the food in those conditions and isn't going to refuse it because they really want the game so anyway i hope this has given you some thoughts by the way when you do go outside and start to use the flirt pole it sometimes can be helpful to have a second person um, I find it works best if the main trainer is moving the flirt pole and doing the whole um, movement of the flirt pole thing. And then the, the second person is just delivering the food. So the second person just walks up with the food and delivers it to the dog and then walks back again. Um, because that's the simpler task, just, you know, administering the reinforcer, as it were. You need to find some way to agree which reinforcer the dog's going to get. So the cue for the um, to get the flirt pole tug will be tag or get in if you're practicing the pointing of it and the flush 
um, and the the queue for the food reinforcer will be the click. So I guess it's possible the person holding the flirt pole could have the clicker, and that way the person holding the flirt pole can begin the reinforcement sequence for either the food or the tug, even if the other person is holding the food and comes up to deliver it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, so these are just some ways that I use the, the tuggy. After it's working like this, I, I like to move it on to the bolting rabbit. Obviously, I'm not going to release the dog to get the bolting rabbit, but that makes it put on a bigger scale, basically, on a more realistic scale. And it's easy to surprise the dog with it out in the field as well. So um, I will just, you know, while the dog, while we're practicing our quartering, just plop the flirt pole out or the tuggy out um, and just practice it in that environment. So, you know, kind of surprising the dog and dropping it into more realistic um, setting instead of a, a focused session just on this one skill. And so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully by that time you get onto game, everything is kind of there. So anyway, that's hope that gives you some ideas for how to approach using tuggies and flirt poles. I think that there's so much we can do, and I think they're a really sort of underused resource. I think that we kind of need to think it through a little bit more about how to use them. And by the way, if you are listening in from North America and you want your dog just to stand there and to point from the stand, then you are going to be teaching a stand cue. And there's lots of great information out there from um, force-free obedience um, um, uh, trainers about how to teach a, a stand, a reliable stand, where the dog knows and understands they have to keep all their four feet rooted to the floor and not move them. And to proof that against all kinds of distractions like food moving around the dog. And then once you've done food moving around the dog, maybe with a reverse lure, you could then have your tuggy moving on the floor and the dog maintains the stand. Um, and you're just gem generally proofing that against everything. Now, you want to again make sure that you're able to reinforce this adequately. So you may have a dog who does find the food reinforcing. Um, you may lose the focus. So if you only reinforce with the food and you never release the dog to have the tuggy, you may lose the focus on the tug completely. So dogs tend to focus on where they perceive the reinforcer is going to come from. So if they perceive that the reinforcer is your food and they're pretty foodie dogs, then they may end up not being interested in the tug at all, they're not really even looking at it. They're just looking at you and your food. So you may want to occasionally release them to the tug, not with a get-in cue because you're not really training a flush, but just with your tag cue to let them know they can get the toy reinforcer this time. So basically, you're just using the same skills, but using them in slightly different ways. Um, and yeah, you want to also proof your stand to something coming down, to, so to shot and to something falling as well. So hopefully all of this makes sense. Um, and if you've got a spaniel, you are not going to be working obviously on the pointing side of things, but you will be working on all the sort of sit to flush part of things. And that would be pretty much the same. So the thing runs or the thing goes up in the air and the dog offers that sit and they perceive that as the cue to sit. So all of that is kind of the same. And probably whether you release to the uh, flirt pole or whether you give the feed is going to be the same as well. I mean, that's quite an interesting thing that's cropped up a few times on the podcast over the months and I think maybe years now that it's been running um, whether you ever release the dog to get the the flirt pole for example or the tuggy or whether you're just using these things as a proofing mechanism now the thing is that if you never let the dog get it like I said the thing stops being relevant for the dog the dog 
ends up completely ignoring it because the dog will stare at where they perceive that the reinforcer is going to come from. So if the reinforcer they perceive is going to be you and your food, they will just learn to completely ignore the tug. And I think then you lose some of the, um, you know, when you're out there in the field, the dog is focused on the game and they want that game. Um, and they would be pretty rubbish as a gun dog if they were not if they, if they believed that they were not going to get the game. They didn't want to focus on the game and they only wanted you and your food. So I think we have to kind of teach them to be responsive in the presence of something that they want and that they perceive to be the reinforcer, but also to accept alternative reinforcers and to be um, able to switch backwards and forwards between the tug and the food. Hopefully some of this makes sense. And if not, hopefully it stimulated some thinking for you about the whole subject. Um, I think we can experiment a lot more with our flirt poles and tucky toys. So that's all for this week, everyone. And I'll be back soon.